Okay, so the series theme for this winter is Confronting a Broken World. Um, and the talk topic today is the sexual abuse crisis and what can we do? Um, our presenter tonight is Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes. Um, lost my page. Uh, he's the ninth bishop of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. He was ordained a priest in 1983, ordained the Bishop of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 2004, and installed as our bishop here in 2010. Bishop Rhodes served as a professor and then rector of Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland from 1995 to 2004, and he was elected by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to serve as chairman of the Committee uh, on Doctrine and re-elected to serve on the Board of Directors for Catholic Release Services. Um, so with that, uh, here's the bishop. Okay. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Okay, good. Good to see you all. Good attendance. The, um, I'm glad we began with the prayer of St. Michael. Um, I've asked or encouraged parishes to pray that at the end of mass, especially given, uh, the sexual abuse crisis. And we're talking about a terrible evil. I can't think of a better way for Satan to um, uh, bring harm to the body of Christ, to the church, than through this terrible sin committed uh, particularly by ministers of Christ, by priests who are ordained for the very opposite, to bring the love of Christ and not harm to God's people, especially innocent children and young people. Um, I could uh, speak a long time on this topic. Uh, I do want to make sure that we have time, that, I, that there's time for your questions, because um, there's a lot of detail. So I'm not going to get into too many details in my talk. And so there might be things that I don't mention that you're wondering about. So I want you to feel free. So what we're going to have is um, the, the large group questions after the small group discussions. Um, I think the first thing is, what is the crisis? Um, there was a crisis back in 2002 when um, the revelations about uh, clergy sexual abuse of minors in the Archdiocese of Boston. That was uncovered by the Boston Globe, and throughout that year, uh, kind of the scope of the problem in that archdiocese became known nationwide, which motivated the bishops, as you probably know, to meet in Dallas, Texas, at their regular meeting and come up with a way to combat this scourge in the church. And they adopted the charter, famous 2002 Dallas Charter for the protection of young people from sexual abuse. I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, at that time, I was rector of the seminary. It wasn't an easy time to be rector because there were young men, uh, you know, striving, you know, to become priests. And it was obviously very disturbing and demoralizing. At the same time, um, there was a resolve that this, the church needs to be purified. Um, and I remember at that time, Pope John Paul II saying that there's no room in the priesthood for anyone who would abuse a child. And um, I remember uh, Mount St. Mary's was a strong seminary. There was no, we had no tolerance of any kind of sexual misconduct. And we had a very good program of formation and chaste celibacy. So we were kind of looked up to as uh, having a good reputation, especially in the human and spiritual formation of future priests. Um, at that time, I remember um, receiving a call from the New York Times uh, asking if they could come down and kind of interview seminarians and also me about what we were doing in the face of this crisis. And that was kind of risky, but at the same time, I had nothing to hide and I felt, well, they should. I don't mind that 
the, that the wider public knows how we're forming priests today. So they did come down and they did this big story and actually it came out fine. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was the pain that everyone was going through. Um, number one, the victims themselves, always number one, but also so many Catholics and others, priests, priests being ashamed um, to wear the Roman collar, whatever, that some of their brother priests had done this. So it was a scourge in the church and has been. Of course, as you may know from the studies that we have done, the problem and the numbers reached their peak in 1970. So I think it's important to put this in context. Like, when did this happen, or how did it happen? Um, this sinful, criminal behavior, this evil that caused so much harm, pain, and suffering to victims. Well, when the bishops gathered, the bishops started to have an idea that there was a problem back around 1985, okay? Most had no clue while it was going on, especially in the 60s. It really started to really increase in the 1960s. In the early 70s, reached its, 1970 and a couple years after, reached its peak, continued pretty much in the 70s, started then to decline in the 80s, and then a steep decline after that in the 90s, and where there's hardly any going on today. Now, so there's been, so the bishops, you know, had, were trying to figure out, okay, what caused this? First of all, what's the scope? You know, the bishops back in the 70s uh, really didn't know. Most didn't know. They might have had one or two reports. There was no clue of, like, how prevalent this might be. And even when things came out in Boston, the question is, well, is it big? It's bigger than Boston, because there were cases, you know, from Louisiana and other places, some very infamous cases. So what the bishops decided to do was really to do an exhaustive study of this, and they commissioned the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which is part of the City University of New York, to study the nature and the scope of sexual abuse of minors by Catholic priests and deacons in the United States. And they looked at the period from 1950 to 2002. This was then published, this research was published in February of 2004. Here it is. Um, so it gave us an idea of, okay, how big is this problem? And where? Well, they found out that um, it really involved about 4% of priests nationwide, 4%. That number was 4,392 priests who were credibly abused, of a, uh, credibly accused of abusing minors. Now, so that's a significant number. And when you think of how many victims that might involve, because a lot of these priests had more than one victim. Um, the majority of those priests with allegations against them um, were priests who were ordained between 1950 and 1979. Okay. Um, 68%. 21% were ordained prior to 1950, and 10% were ordained after 1979. When you look at our diocese, it's very similar. And actually, the numbers are pretty similar across the country. Anyhow, there's a lot more data, but just so you get an idea. But that didn't give us enough. This gave us a, a, an, an understanding of the scope and the nature of the problem. Um, but then we really want to know, well, what caused it? So the bishops had 
this John Jay College research team do another research study on the causes and the context. This came out in 2011. This gives us a lot more important data in my mind, because if we're going to confront and eradicate the problem, we have to know what are the causes. And so I think this was, was very, very helpful. They didn't find one single cause, but something that was very clear was that in, not just among priests, but in the society in general, in the 60s and 70s, there were increased levels of deviant behaviors that included sexual abuse. Um, as I mentioned, there was a sharp decline uh, by 1985 that began. Um, so it really is a historical problem. Um, so there were social factors at play in American society. As there was increase in uh, abuse of minors, there was increase in premarital sex, increase of divorce, increase of drug use and crime. All the, it was like a, so, a social upheaval took place in the 60s and 70s. And that's what the incidence of sexual abuse of minors kind of correlated with that. Um, Questions like came up about, well, is it because of celibacy? Would that be something? No. Research shows um, that celibacy was not, could not be considered from their research a cause of the crisis. They were in celibacy and an exclusively male priesthood were invariant, is the word they used, during the increased peak and decrease in abuse incidents. Seminary education, very interesting. I was very interested in this because of my uh, background. Um, men ordained in the 30s, 40s, and 50s who abused, didn't abuse before the 60s. Okay, so in other words, uh, the abusive behavior, uh, and then priests ordained in the 60s and 70s, they did abuse more quickly. In other words, they were younger when they abused. So you see the timing is, is, is something significant. Um, seminary education didn't really include this aspect that we call human formation. It was very, seminary formation was pretty rigid. You know, you did your studies, you had a rigid schedule, you, you know, a lot of laws about going out, you know, all that, but there wasn't really attention to the growth of the person, you know, the human side of things, um, especially issues of sexuality. But that started to change by the 90s. John Paul was very strong on that. He said the basis of all seminary formation, all priestly formation has to be human formation. We need healthy men who are affectively mature. Well, so there was a problem in seminary formation because they didn't attend to that. But that was, I mean, that's across society. Other uh, denominations didn't, they weren't, you know, in tune with that either. But, but that's changed things significantly. Some t many of the accused priests began abusing um, at times of increased job stress, social isolation, and decreased contact with peers. This is really important because if you want to say, okay, what's the profile of an abuser? It's kind of hard to see. However, these were things that are pretty indicative. One is that they didn't have good friendships, close friendships with peers. They were kind of socially isolated in that regard. Many of them, by the way, did have illicit sexual behavior with adults as well. That was discovered. Um, they were not, oh, less than 5% of the priests with allegations against them were diagnosed with pedophilia. So every time you hear in the news, you know, this is a problem of pedophilia, it isn't. Less than 5% had to do with prepubescent children, 
children before puberty. So the great majority are teenagers. I can give you the exact statistics on that. Um, if you want them, I know they're here somewhere. There were some priests uh, who themselves were sexually abused when they were children, when they were minors. And that was a factor in maybe 7%, if I'm not mistaken, of the priest abusers themselves were abused. In all the studies, we see that problem of, of um, having been abused themselves. Again, that lack of close social bonds also, they found their families, their own upbringing, the family spoke negatively or not at all about sex. So they really didn't have a healthy sex education. So organizationally, what was the church then doing? Um, before 1985, uh, there weren't a lot of cases that really came to the attention of church authorities. Um, we started to see, and, and keep in mind why. I mean, first of all, victims normally don't come forward for various reasons. So we started to have victims coming forward. If this, most of this abuse was taking place, you know, in the 60s and 70s, so it's like 10, 20 years later, that they start coming forward. And this is when the church in the 80s really started to realize that we have a problem. Um, and by the mid-90s, especially. The bishops knew there was a problem in 1985, but they didn't know the scope of it. Though more than 80% of cases now known had already occurred by 1985, only 6% of those cases had been reported to the dioceses at that time. Now, when an allegation was made, most diocesan leaders did respond. They didn't ignore it. But how they responded left a lot to be desired. But if you say, well, the church didn't do anything, well, they did. I think church authorities at that time were like, a lot of them just didn't know what to do with these guys. Um, but their focus, this was a real big problem. And I try to think, well, what was a bishop thinking? Their focus was on the priest abuser. There was no focus on the victim. The victim and, and the suffering that they were enduring, that kind of breaks my heart when I think about that. But that was the case. Um, so what the bishops started to do was, okay, let's try to get rehabilitation for these priests. So they sent them to treatment facilities. That was the general mode. And, and uh, rarely would they meet with victims. Um, so if you don't meet with victims, you don't know the harm that this is, the harm that that, that caused. Um, I mean, I kind of intellectually kind of knew about the harm to victims by the time I became a bishop in 2004, but I didn't know it in my heart until I met with victims. You know, that's that affected me tremendously. Um, so through the years, I would say, and by the way, they'd send these priests for rehabilitation. And then many of these treatment facilities would say, okay, this guy is okay. He can go back in ministry. And the bishops took their word for it, put him back in ministry. And that was a mistake. Um, they might abuse again. And, and many did, I guess. Um, the other thing is, um, let's move up to the 90s. In 1992, the American bishops endorsed what are called the five principles in response to the sexual abuse of minors. The problem is, these weren't norms. These were kind of out there, and some bishops were very good in following these principles, 
and others were very negligent. So one thing when you read like the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report or something, you, th you think that every bishop was negligent or every bishop was doing the same way. No, there was a variety according to dioceses. Some handled it better. Some really did adhere to these principles and others did not. Here are the five principles. Number one, respond promptly to all allegations of abuse where there is reasonable belief that abuse has occurred. Number two, if such an allegation is supported by sufficient evidence, relieve the alleged offender promptly of his ministerial duties and refer him for appropriate medical evaluation and intervention. Number three, comply with the obligations of civil law regarding reporting of the incident and cooperating with the investigation. Number four, reach out to the victims and their families and communicate sincere commitment to their spiritual and emotional well-being. And number five, within the confines of respect for privacy of the individuals involved, deal as openly as possible with the members of the community. Um, this, so the response was uneven across the country. Some bishops adhered to these principles, others that they weren't normative, like the Charter of 2002, and then they have norms attached to them. So they're, and they're approved by the Vatican, so we have to handle things in this way. Um, they weren't really handling it canonically either, like we do today. And now we have to. In other words, ecclesiastical penalties like dismissal from the clerical state. And then one other thing about the abusers, <clears throat> often psychologically, they had what they call emotional congruence with the minor. In other words, their emotional needs, since they were not in good, intimate, close relationships with peers, they were kind of emotionally, uh, I, I would say there was a stunting of their psychosexual development is the way I speak about it. Um, and they would overcome the child's resistance by grooming techniques. They would overcome external factors by creating opportunities for abuse to occur you know, on a retreat or with an altar boy or whatever. By the way, 80% of those numbers I gave you were male, or 81%, 19% female. Females tended to be younger victims, by the way, than the male victims. Um, generally, the minors who were abused did not disclose their victimization. They were ashamed. Some of them were confused, they blamed themselves, whatever. And the signs of abuse were not detected by their families or those close to them. That silence was typical from the 50s through the 90s. Um, so anyhow, it gives you some idea of, of uh, now, now, for example, in the seminary today, if we see an absence of close personal relationships, that's a red flag. You know, we want to see healthy friendships, you know. But if, you, if you're kind of saying, okay, are we looking at pedophilia, a pathological disorder? In very few cases. Okay. How do we handle it now? Since 2002... We have the charter. There's zero tolerance. This goes beyond the 1995 principles. In other words, one act of abuse, a priest is removed forever from any priestly ministry. That's the norm since 2002. The uh, repercussions would be a priest, the, the, the worst that could happen to the priest is he's removed from the clerical state. The bishop cannot do that. Only the Pope can do that. Um, and it's a whole canonical process, etc. Some are not removed from the clerical state, but they are not able to do any public ministry, but they live what we call a life of prayer and penance. 
So, for example, some of the priest abusers from our diocese are living a life of prayer and penance. Others have been dismissed from the clerical state. We also have lay people involved through the diocesan review board, as well as a national review board for the USCCB. I couldn't do this without the help of the Diocesan Review Board. We have experts in psychology, law enforcement, attorneys, uh, psychologists, did I say? You know, we have all these professionals. So when there is an allegation, well, first of all, they help me uh, develop the policies for our diocese, because every diocese has to have their policies that are in accord with the charter. But then they help me when there, a case does arise to judge whether it's credible or not. They also advise me on what to do, what I should ask of Rome, because now we're required anytime uh, there's been a credible accusation, I have to send it to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And they make the determination of whether uh, uh, this priest should be in a life of prayer and penance or uh, dismissed from the clerical state. I give my opinion <coughs> in my letter to Rome, but they make the, the actual uh, decision. Report to law enforcement, always. Whenever there's a credible allegation, I always report, even when the law doesn't require it. Now, if it's past the statute of limitations, I think in Indiana, you know, we report to law enforcement. They don't even want us to report. And I had a thing, you know, and Bishop Darcy just, when he was bishop, he reported if the law required it to be reported. I changed that. I said, I don't care whether the law requires it or not. I'm reporting it. And, uh, and whether they want to get the report or not, I'm reporting it. Um, so that's very important. The seminarian screening. I already talked about formation but also the screening of seminarians, the psychologicals and all that. You know, we look for any of those red flags. We look, we want sexually mature men, affectively mature. Every diocese has a victim assistance coordinator. Ours is Mary Glowoski, who is the point person uh, who helps the victims who come forward. Uh, I always... Um, I'm open to meeting with victims. So Mary will always give that offer to a victim. Some don't want to meet with the bishop. Some do, but maybe a little later in the process. But one of the things that make me feel best is the healing that I've seen. I've had two victims in the past two or three months that I've met with that we're like friends. I mean, we're in contact and they're, you know, I'm giving them spiritual, you know, direction kind of. And um, I mean, really amazing healing that can take place when victims are treated properly. I mean, they're part of us. They're part of the body of Christ who've been harmed by, by priests. You know, I think it's always important to remember what, what St. Paul wrote. If one member of the body suffers, all suffer. And, and we really have to take that seriously. We also have our safe environment program so that there are criminal background checks on all diocesan employees and volunteers with children and safe environment training, which is some of you probably have gone through it if you're working in our parishes or volunteering. Really very, very important. And we can also so you're, our people are trained to look for the signs, first of all, to know the law when they need to report, but also signs of, um, you know, a child who may have been abused and things like that. Um, one thing that was missing from the charter and the norms, and this really is part of the present crisis, because I talked about the 2002 crisis. What about the 2018 crisis? Well. I try to figure out, okay, what is it that created a new crisis? I think there's a couple things. One is there was no mechanism for holding bishops accountable. For example, what if a bishop was the abuser? You know, this didn't apply to the bishop. 
And the reason I think back in 2002 when they did the charter, they didn't think they were allowed to do that. Bishops couldn't make, only the Vatican had authority over bishops. So that was a lacuna in the charter. And also who's holding the bishops accountable for following the norms? What if a bishop is negligent in it? He has to be held accountable or removed from being bishop. So I think that is part of the crisis now is that um, that, that, that was a loophole that, that for some reason they didn't, I think because they didn't think they had the authority to do so. And actually, even now we're waiting because we had in November when the USCCB met a way to hold bishops accountable and a lay review board, et cetera, and the Vatican said no. So they said to wait until this big meeting that's gonna happen at the Vatican in two weeks where all the heads of the Episcopal conferences from around the world will be meeting with Pope Francis to address the problem. I think the problem in other countries, I mean, we're way ahead in the United States of handling this problem than the church in other countries, to be honest. Um, so the other problem that I think created the crisis that we're in now is Archbishop McCarrick, who the Pope removed him from being a cardinal. But the, we're all scratching our heads about how he rose through the ranks, became Archbishop of Washington, became a cardinal, when some knew that he was involved in sexual misconduct with adults. Doesn't seem like anyone knew that he had abused minors. That came out later. We know two minors that he abused um, that have been reported. Um, but yet, it seems that it was known, even at the Vatican, when and all that, or at least suspected. Maybe some didn't believe he did, but the fact that he took seminarians to, I guess he had a place at the shore or something, and slept with them, evidently there were rumors about that. And the question is, and we still haven't gotten to the bottom of this, like who knew? There was a settlement made with two adult uh, victims, again, who weren't minors at the time, they were seminarians, when he was, I, I don't know if it was when he was Bishop of Metuchen, I think, because he was the founding bishop of the Diocese of Metuchen, New Jersey, then became Archbishop of Newark. Evidently, when he was an Archbishop in Newark, he took, he did this with seminarians. By the time he got to Washington, though, that had stopped. So someone, you know, put a stop to it. Um, I had seminarians from Washington at Mount St. Mary's. They never mentioned a thing. And I think they would have, actually, if he had taken them anywhere. I think they would have told me. But it had stopped before he got to Washington. But who knew? How did, I mean, okay, no one knew he had abused minors, but this sexual misconduct with seminarians, um, you know, the fact that there were two lawsuits that were settled uh, by, I guess, well, while he was Archbishop of Newark, or I don't know if he had already moved to Washington by then, but, but at least the Archbishop of Newark and the Bishop of Metuchen had to know, you know, if they did the settlements. So that's a, and then the, of course, we have what Archbishop Vigano is saying, that, it, it, that's a whole big thing. So the Vatican and dioceses are still studying that, and something will come out, I'm sure, about that. But however it happened, that's, you know, there needs reform. Like, that should never have happened. We have our own diocesan policy for handling allegations when they come. If you want to know more about that in the Q&A, I can share with you. Um, I think you know probably the basics of it. If someone came forward, well, what, let me just tell you the very basics. Uh, if someone came forward with an accusation, um, we I would set up a team. They, could, they normally would report to the vicar general or the victim assistance coordinator. They're the two phone numbers that we have on all of our uh, materials on the website and everything. So they usually call one of those numbers. I'll get a team together, two or three, to, um, to do a preliminary investigation just to make sure this isn't something outlandish, that there's at least basic facts that this could be true. 
Um, and if that's the case, and they say, yes, it's possible, then I immediately remove the priest from ministry while a further investigation takes place, a more thorough investigation. At that point, I bring it to the Dawson Review Board. I get their advice. I send all the material to Rome, and the, then it's in the hands of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. That's, in a nutshell, how we handle it. And then we wait. So the priest isn't involved in any ministry. We wait and see how we're going to proceed. Um, and if Rome says they agree, this man, uh, you know, abused a minor, at that point, he's permanently removed from ministry and is either on a life of prayer and penance or dismissed from the clerical state. That's the basic thing. Okay. I also wonder about the present crisis. Um, the Pennsylvania grand jury report that came out over the summer. In the media, there were headlines like this, a new wave of sex abuse scandals. There was new, no new wave of sex abuse scandals. They were all the past cases. It's, it's, I mean, I wasn't surprised by, you know, there were, what, 300 priests in six dioceses of Pennsylvania who abused about 1,000 minors. Well, that kind of goes with the material we already had from the John Jay study. Um, I think what was most disturbing, though, was this was the first time where graphic details came out. I mean, it's horrible what some of these priests did. Sacrilegious. I mean, it, it just makes you want to throw up. Um, so I think that was part of the shock. Um, and then the fact of how some of those bishops handled the cases, where they, really stuff I already said, where they, you know, um, maybe returned a priest to ministry if, when he came back from a treatment center and the psychologist said, oh, he's okay to go back to ministry, or where they tried to cover it up from everybody so no one would find out, or where they, um, you know, showed no care or little care for the victims. But that was the way it was earlier on, you know. So I think that caused, um, but it's not a new wave of sex abuse. There's not like, you know, these cases go back many, many years. There's only a few, very few since the charter, very few since 2002, but the decline had already started in the 1980s. So anyhow, um, there were broad brush condemnations in the grand jury report. If you look at it uh, more closely, the truth is cases were handled differently in different decades. Some dioceses and bishops handled cases better than others. There was some demagoguery, especially the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, inflammatory rhetoric, and there was no like fair saying, well, no, the, the church has responded, had made changes and improvements. We have the charter and all that. There was some cursory mention of that in the grand jury report. But the way it was presented to the public, it was like we had this new, uh, uh, um, how would I say it? Well, new wave of, of abuse. Um, and that's just not true. Um, most cases reported today uh, come from many, many years ago. The, uh, my own personal experience, um, by the way, most of those cases in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, the priests are already, were already removed, or they're dead, or they're retired. So, just so you know that. I was Bishop of Harrisburg for five years. During those five years, there was only one report of, of sexual abuse by an active priest. He was religious. He wasn't a diocesan priest. He was a religious order, oblate of St. Francis of Sales. And I had the charter. I followed it right away. So I only had to remove one priest. My predecessor had removed many others because he was bishop in the 90s. And uh, when these priests were starting to get removed, he was the, the bishop in 2002. Um, but I only had one. 
and removed him immediately. However, while I was bishop, there were some victims who came forward who were uh, reporting abuse by priests who had already been removed. Um, and they were already either dismissed from the clerical state or living a life of prayer and penance. So at that point, there wasn't much more to do other than care for the new victim. Um, in my nine years as Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, I've had to remove three active priests. Um, and I removed all three immediately, same thing. Um, the two, two of those three that I removed, I had some outcry from the laity. Um, the one I didn't because he admitted it. The other two, I got a good bit of angry mail from, pre, from laity who said they didn't believe it. And one in particular, I probably had over a hundred letters of people saying, what you did to this priest is unjust and all that. I have five victims who came forward with that priest that I, yes, yes. And the thing is, I don't share with the public, you know, the details, you know, of that. I mean, that wouldn't be right. Um, wouldn't be fair, I mean, the victims too. I mean, I wanna protect the victims. Um, so in some ways, I think it's good for you to understand that too, that we're not, I'm not out to get priests who are innocent. I would never remove a priest who I didn't have a credible allegation against, but I use the Dawson Review Board. It's not just my judgment. I have these experts, testimony of victims. When you have five victims who don't know each other, and it's the same MO in each case, same type of abuse in each case, and these are uh, victims from different parishes, how can it not be true? You know, I mean, so anyhow, just so you get an idea, it's not always easy as a bishop too, because, you know, sometimes people are, you know, thinking that, uh, last thing I would want is an innocent priest to be, and there are cases throughout the country where innocent priests have been accused and found to be innocent, and then we have to do all in our power to restore their good reputation, but that's pretty hard. It's really sad when those, when innocent priests are, um, there's a very good article about the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report written by Peter Steinfels. It's in Commonweal Magazine, and he's pretty critical of the way um, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury approached it and the way the Attorney General reported it because, you know, we should be about the truth to be. Uh, and the other thing that is really important is this is a societal problem. It's not just a problem within the Catholic Church. Every study shows that the percent of public school teachers who've abused minors is significantly higher than the percent of Catholic priests who've abused minors. But no one is as transparent as we are. No one has done these studies like we have. Now I'm saying this not just to be defensive, but just to be honest, that if we're gonna eradicate this problem, others should be doing this too. This gets very frustrating to me. Like why, why are other organizations not taking these measures? We wanna protect all kids, not just from Catholic priests who are predators, but other predators, you know, and a lot takes place in the families as well. What can you do? I say, number one, be informed. Know the truth and then spread it. Get the facts straight about all of this. That's so important. I think a lot of the secular press deserves praise for exposing the abuse. I honestly do. I'm kind of grateful to the Boston Globe. I think they, as hard as it was, I think they helped us to get at this problem. But then there's other press that are very biased and you know, like these reports, I mean, how could they say, you know, 
that the, you know things like this is an ongoing serious problem where priests are abusing minors when we have very few now who do. That's just false. So where do you get your news? I'd say check multiple sources. You know, don't just t read one thing and take it as the gospel. You know, look at m multiple sources. Look for the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, honestly. We can't deny the horrors or how cases were mishandled years ago. But we shouldn't be believing half-truths, distortions, or falsehoods. And as I said, other institutions should be investigated. I mean, let's be fair about this. All these legislatures who want to lift the statute of limitations, do window legislation, look-back legislation, which would allow civil suits, um, well, both criminal and civil suits, criminal against the abuser, but civil against the church. I, it, I think it's very wrong to do that if everyone doesn't have to face that. If they can bring lawsuits against the Catholic Church for past cases, um, you know, sue our diocese, for example, for um, negligence by a bishop here 40 years ago, um, why not, what about public schools? What about other churches that have been negligent? What about uh, Boy Scouts? What about all these other organizations? You know, so I don't think that it's right to just target us. Um, it's a societal problem. I think we need to work together to protect children. You know, it shouldn't be, I mean, I think it should be the Catholic Church and all of us, all these institutions, eradicate this problem. What else can you yourselves do? First of all, if you know a survivor of clergy sexual abuse, please encourage them to come forward for help and support. Please do. When I release the names, that's a whole nother thing. When I released the names a few months ago of all those pr priest abusers of our diocese, um, that was kind of a difficult decision. I, I was always 50-50 because on the one hand, the reason for doing it and what ended up the reason I did is it brings healing to victims. That was the number one reason that I released the names. But it causes a lot of hurt. You know, the families of the priests who didn't know, the parishioners. I mean, there were some broken hearts when some of the people of our diocese saw this priest that had their wedding and they looked up to was on the list I released. So that's why it was a real struggle for me to decide whether to do it. And I finally did because I prayed about it so much. I would say now maybe half the dioceses of the United States have released the names. After I did, announced that I would, then all the other Indiana dioceses did. But um, uh, although I'm not sure if Evansville has yet or not, but the others, Gary and Lafayette and Indianapolis did. I'm not sure about Evansville. Another thing, uh, so encourage victims to come forward. We want to help them. And I do see the healing that takes place. Also, regarding yourselves, and you know, our faith has to be in Christ. I, not his ambassadors. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't trust the clergy. We're only ta we're talking about four percent, but or even bishops who've screwed things up. But our faith must be in Christ, the head of the church. Um, we have to be focused on Him, on the sacraments. I think for me to experience the scandal. You know, it's painful, and, and, but it doesn't shatter my faith. My faith has never been in, uh, you know, resting in, in, in priests. Even if I'm shocked when I've learned a priest that I knew or looked up to had abused a minor, it doesn't shatter my faith because my faith is in Christ. I, you know, the sins of members of the church, the church is still holy. Um, we're, you know, we're made up of sinners, but the reason the church is holy is it's because of Christ and it's because of the Holy Spirit. So it's not going to shake my faith in the church. 
I talked about the norms and how necessary these are, these canonical changes. All of that is really uh, important, but true renewal is more than norms. We need committed disciples. We need good holy priests. We need holiness. And that begins with ourselves. It begins with you as laity and me. That's what's going to make a holier church. There needs to be intolerance for unchaste activity. Um, and when there are, when there is problematic, suspicious behavior, we need to correct it. Fraternal correction or report violations if one sees violations of boundaries, etc. Another thing you can do, help with the safe environment stuff in the parishes and schools. Maybe volunteer in helping with the screening and training that we do. We have safe environment coordinators in our parishes that some of the big parishes could really use some help. It's a lot of work. And, of course, prayer. Prayer for the victims. Um, I pray for them all the time. I do penance, too, for them. Um, uh, the two that I mentioned in recent months that I've kind of become close to, um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like my relationship with them is is definitely a spiritual, kind of a deeply spiritual relationship um, that... Um, and ask for the Lord's strength and peace in the midst of this crisis that the church will get through. I think fasting, penance, reparation. You know, someone said to me, well, Bishop, why are you asking us to do penance or fasting? We didn't do anything wrong. And I said, well, remember what St. Paul said. When one member suffers, all suffer. That's why we can, we can do reparation, um, even if we had nothing to do with the sins. You mentioned that. Mount St. Mary's was being looked at as sort of this example of success story, as it were, um, with the seminary. Um, so places like the seminary that McCarrick was at, um, what is being, what has been done or what is being done about kind of stopping homosexual subculture there or whatever else is wrong? Excellent question. Um, I would say that there were a number of seminaries in the 70s that had homosexual subcultures. Um, there were, and I think a lot of that in the 80s and 90s, by the 90s and 2000s, especially when Pope John Paul came out with Pastores Dabo Vobis, which gave up, um, you know, things started to change. So well, there was a lot of reform of seminaries that actually took place already. Recently, though, there were questions about a, some homosexual uh, activity going on in a seminary up in New England somewhere, and then Newark. I don't know if they were saying there was a homosexual subculture there or not, but McCarrick, when he was there, obviously there was a problem. Um, so those of all are all being investigated now. But I think there's very few. My, from my experience, Homosexual subcultures are not tolerated. Um, let me give you an example of when I was in the seminary. I was two years at St. Charles in Philadelphia because I entered the seminary as a junior in college. Very naive young man. And um, there were some guys that I found to be strange. My friends, though, were all normal. I, I mean... <laughs> We did normal things, but there was something abnormal in that community that I didn't know what it was. I honestly don't. Now, looking back, I think there was probably some, maybe a little homosexual subculture. I don't think it was much, but, but there were guys who were very immature, very immature. And that wasn't healthy. Like, even my friends and I would say, how did he get here? You know, he has a problem. You know, that was my experience. Then I went to Rome. Now, North American College for four years as a seminary, and later I was there as a young priest, but um, the faculty, a number of the faculty, this is not at the university where I did my studies. The university was great. 
the Gregorian University. But the North American College, many of those faculty members I did not look up to. They would party, drink heavily with seminarians and all that, and it just was not right, you know? And I, whether there was anything sexual, I don't know. But it, spiritually, it was not good. Now, we were 10 minutes from St. Peter's, from the Vatican. So I would go over there and listen to John Paul. And again, I found friends who would share the values that I had, and those are the guys I'd hang, up with, hang out with. But um, so anyhow, I kind of would call it a self-formation. In other words, I didn't, I mean, I had to have my, they evaluated. After my first year at the North American College, you know what my evaluation back to my bishop was? That they thought I belonged in a monastery. <laughs> I started like, what? And it was because I would be found in chapel praying, you know? And that's the kind of attitude. I mean, things were not good. That was, you know, early 80s. The... Um, then when I went back as a graduate student, I was ordained, and then I was back home for two years. I was sent back in 85 to the Casa Santa Maria, the graduate school. And there were a group of guys, priests, who wouldn't wear clerical garb, always attacking Pope John Paul. They hated Cardinal Ratzinger. And they were, I think, a homosexual group. Um, again, I had no evidence, but I, that was where I saw it most uh, dramatically, I would say. Now, they were a minority, maybe 10 or 12, um, and I didn't get along at all. Um, and uh, so there, was there were definitely problems. And I would hear, oh, this is another thing, from some of my friends who were in seminaries before they went to Rome, I would hear bad stories about goings on in some of these other seminaries. So now I think what, like I had a woman who came to see me who had the idea that this is how seminaries are today. And even as much as I tried to convince her that's not true, um, she didn't believe me, I don't think. She was thinking that our seminarians were like at risk of being, you know. I said, first of all, I'd be, I have a good close relationship with our seminarians. So does our vocation director. I think if anything amiss happened, they would come forward. I'd be very surprised that they wouldn't. Um, but I actually know the rector very well. He wouldn't tolerate anything. Uh, and I know most of the faculty, some of them that I appointed to the faculty. I mean, there's just no tolerance for it. So, but if you don't have good, if you have unhealthy or problematic priests in these seminaries, that's bad. Uh, you know, could it happen? Yeah. If a bishop's not careful, because a bishop ultimately is responsible for the seminaries in his diocese. If he's not overseeing it, it could happen. But I think we need to have our best priests. I gave one of our best priests, Monsignor Michael Heinz. A lot of you know Monsignor Heinz. Some said to me, Bishop, why did you let him go? I said, I have to. I said, for the good of the church, I want our best priests forming future priests. You know, yeah, it's a big sacrifice. I could use him here. I could use him as a pastor, you know. But I have to think of the formation of our future priests. We need to put our best priests, not priests we want to get, you know, get rid of. You know, I had the experience of not having good priests at the seminary I went to. That's not right. Yes. Your Excellency, th thank you for your talk. Um, you mentioned that one thing that happens uh, to credibly accused abusers is that they might enter a life of prayer and penance. And I was wondering if you could give us more details about what that entails in this diocese and if you're able to speak more broadly to that as yeah. well. Um, just because sometimes uh, without knowing what that daily life looks like, it can kind of sound like a euphemism for they're on vacation. Right, right, yeah. No, good question. A life of prayer and penance is they're restricted from any public ministry. And um, the details are usually in a letter that I would give a decree to them saying you are prohibited from celebrating sacraments publicly, prohibited from preaching, prohibited from wearing clerical garb, prohibited from presenting yourself as father. I mean, it's a whole list of things. Um, usually they are allowed, 
to celebrate private mass, private mass. Um, they are allowed to hear confessions only in danger of death, of someone dying, you know. Um, but that's about it. Um, and, and really, I, I think that's pretty much standard, not just our diocese. Um, the, um, there was one priest I removed that originally I didn't prohibit him from wearing clerical garb, and I should have, and then I eventually did. Um, but uh, because I saw that he was going around in a way that it was looked like he was okay, you know, in good status with the church, and I didn't want that. Uh, the um, so basically that's what it is. They're supposed to be spending their time in prayer. They're doing this as penance. Um, the one thing about it is there is a certain amount of supervision that I can do because they're still um, priests. Um, they're not removed from the clerical state. The danger with the dismissal from the clerical state, then they're, they're free of any supervision. There was a priest who I was sharing with someone up here who um, was removed before I was bishop here. He was dismissed from the clerical state. A new accusation came while I was bishop. I handled it normally, but he was already dismissed from the clerical state. Uh, I met the guy. He introduced himself to me when I was at a parish visiting, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And I was concerned because it was in the social hall and there were kids around, so I put out a restriction. He couldn't be there. And, um, but when I reported it to the police this new accusation, they didn't want it. They said, listen, it's beyond the statute of limitations. I said, I think this guy's a risk. I think he still could be abusing. And they had told, he told our lawyer, I don't, we, we can't do anything. So then I got on the phone and I called. I said, listen, I know you don't want this because you don't have anything you can do about it. I said, but I think he could still be abusing minors. And he's beyond my control. I have no authority over him. He's dismissed from the clerical state. So the police officer said, we're going to do surveillance around his house, which I was really glad. At least I could do something, you know. Yes. Oh, last. Oh, I'm sorry. We, we, didn't we get... have talked, you have talked a lot about sexual abuse by priests. Are there measures in this diocese or any other diocese for priests that have abused anyone in other forms, such as physical abuse, emotional abuse, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, if there's any reports of that, we deal with it. Um, you know, um, we don't have a set policy on that. Uh, we can't have norms on everything. But if there are uh, situations where there's an abuse of authority or financial, you know, what could come up is financial mismanagement or even um, theft. Um, we have, I follow a similar process of investigation um, and reporting if we find it to be credible. Um, that would be the more likely thing. But as far as emotional abuse, that's, Yeah, I don't know that I've, you know, if I get a complaint from someone that a priest was mean to them or something like that, I'll get that kind of stuff. But you just have to look at it, and if it requires some fraternal correction, then we'll do it, either the vicar or, or myself. Yeah, yes, one more. Uh, Let's one, just get one, one more. <laughs> yes. Emily. Hi. Um, so we often talk about this need for an increased role for the laity in addressing this this issue. And I think a lot of us are left wondering, what does that look like? And so you mentioned the great things that you've done in our diocese, having this you know committee of people, experts in the field, whether it's psychologists, law enforcement. Um, we saw the response to the the Boston crisis of this national review board of, of lay people. Um, but so we, we are just curious of other, I guess, concrete things that you may have in mind that you've heard discussed. I mean, something we talked about was this revamping of the safe environment training. Like maybe you bring in the voices of victims themselves or the families of victims or parents. Um, wow. so yeah, ideas. That's a good idea. <laughs> you know what? Thank you for that suggestion. You know, um, 
I think even sometimes I think lay people as spokespersons. I down on this in the South Bend side of the diocese, you know, it was one of the members of our review board, Donald Schmidt, who was a federal prosecutor, who gave talks on how we're due. And I thought he, you know, he was a very good spokesman uh, for the church on this side of the diocese. I think that can help as well. Um, but I love that idea of using having laity involved in the safe environment video would be a really good thing, I think. And victims. Because I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Do you think the average Catholic understands how harmful? I mean, they know how grievously a sin it is. But do you think they, a lot of people know how that really messes up a person's life? No. Yeah, it depends. Because it really, I mean, it's such a tender age. And, and their relationship with God, uh, oftentimes troubled marriages, alcoholism, even suicide. I mean, it's bad. So a lot of healing um, is needed. So, yeah. Well, th thanks for that suggestion. Well, we could spend another hour. <laughs> but I thank you for your attention. I hope it was helpful. Uh, please continue to pray. We need you. You know, your faith in Christ and his church. Don't let it be shaken by the sins of some. Um, we've seen this in, in the, you know, the church after 2,000 years. We've had to deal. It's a church of saints and sinners. Remember that. So what we can do is try to be on the saint side as much we, as we can. So God bless all of you. Thank you.